Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Professor Ian Beckett, Honorary Professor of Military History at the University of Kent, about his research into the Bucks Battalion of the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry during the Great War. Ian spoke to me from his office in Kent. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? <laughs> well, um, I, uh, strangely enough, I, I was born in Buckinghamshire. I, I was born and brought up in a village called Witcher, which is just north of Aylesbury. And I think although you know, my father's generation had just, just come through, I won't say exactly how close, but just come through the, the Second World War, I was aware, really, quite an early age, that there was an awful lot of memories, popular memories of the First World War in the village um, still. And later, I discovered there were an awful lot of men who'd served either in the, the Bucks Battalions uh, of the Territorial Force or indeed the War Bucks Hazards. Um, so I, I knew I, I was interested in military history from a very early age, and I knew I wanted to do something in that field. I wanted to be. And then they... Because um, I was also interested in local history and everybody in the village knew me, uh, there was a, a WEA class. I'm not sure the Workers' Educational Association still exists, but it was an adult education class um, on local history. And they allowed me to go. I sat at the back and said nothing. And uh, this was 1963, so you know, it was almost 60 years ago. And uh, one of the sessions was on militia yeomanry volunteers, which I in the Napoleonic Wars, of which I'd never heard. I thought this is pretty fascinating. So I went to, started going to the, the record office in Aylesbury, the, the old county record office, after school, looking at the lieutenancy records. And it really started from then. And from that point, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And when I was an undergraduate, um, I worked in the record office they, they employed me in the school in the university holidays and the the old county territorial association had just gone been they'd all been dis- disposed of in 1967 and all the papers came to the record office and therefore i cataloged them back in 1968 so you know, that was fantastic so post-grad i did my work on the in fact the victorian rifle volunteers and that pursued that for a couple of years but then we were we were getting very close to the 70th anniversary of the great war and uh, at that point, um, a lot of us who'd started working on various things in the Victorian period simply moved into the First World War. And in my, the obvious thing for me was a territorial force. So I started actually writing stuff about the territorial in sort of 84, 1984, 1985. And so it's gone from there, really. So I'm, I've been pursuing the Buckinghamshire Battalion for almost 60 years, I'm sorry to say. Which neatly brings me on to my next question. Can you tell us about the Buckinghamshire Battalion? What type of unit was it? When was it created? And where did it serve during the Great War? Well, rather like a lot of the old rifle volunteer units, the the Buckinghamshire units are formed in 1859 uh, because there's this French invasion scare. And the, it, the various corps in Buckinghamshire, like everywhere else, are consolidated into a battalion. That was in 1875. They become first Bucks Rifle Volunteers. They're nominally 
they are a volunteer battalion that what's the Oxfordshire Light Infantry at that stage. Um, and then, of course, they, they move into territorial force when it's formed in 1908. Now, the, 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 in 1908, when they formed the territorial force, the old militia is abolished. And there was what was called the Royal Bucks King's Own Militia. And there was an outcry in the county that you know, this was disappearing. And therefore, they managed to get um, a concession from the War Office uh, that uh, it became the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. And the what had been the Bucks Rifle Volunteers then became the Buckinghamshire Battalion. Uh, so it's a territorial unit. Uh, and as, as, as you will know, certainly uh, in 1914, there's this expansion of territorial force. You have the first line and the second and the third line. And logically, you would say it ought to be the first Bucks Battalion, the second Bucks Battalion, the third Bucks Battalion. But War Office being War Office, it's the one first, two first and third first battalions. And that's true of all the other territory units as well. So it's the one, it's the old pre-war battalion, uh, now the one first Bucks Battalion. Uh, that's in 145 Brigade in the 48th South Midland Division. And they go overseas, they go to France in, in March of 1915, and they go through the Somme and Third Ypres. And then they're one of the five British divisions that are sent to Italy in after, I mean, the, the Italians are heavily defeated by Germans and Austro-Hungarians at Caporetto in October 17. Five British divisions are then sent out to Italy, including the 48th. And that then stays in Italy, um, gets there in November 17 and stays there until the end. And they come home in February 1919. Now, for the first the first stroke one back Bucks Battalion, you have what is known as casualty books. And you've used these to uh, develop a lot of research on the unit. Could you tell us exactly what these casualty books are? What do they tell us? And what so? And can you tell us what they tell us about the men who served in the unit? And could you perhaps describe them? So I know you sent me a photograph. Obviously, that we're, we're an audio audio um, only podcast. So trying to understand what exactly they look like would be really helpful. <laughs> OK, well, what, what, I mean, anybody who's tried to re- you know, kind of research a serviceman in the First World War, uh, we'll, we'll soon know, of course, that, uh, that, that an awful lot of the personnel records were, were, were blitzed. Uh, they were in a, a warehouse in London that was blitzed in September 1940. So the National Archives at Kew, you've got what they euphemistically call as the uh, uh, the burnt collection, uh, which is the survivors. So it's very, very difficult. Um, but what is useful is that there are a few survivals, mostly in regimental collection, of casualty books. And in this case, uh, the casualty books are the one first Bucks Battalion. I mean, there are some others. I know, for example, uh, Royal Norfolk Regiment has got some in, in their regimental. And essentially what it is, it's a, a, a lot, they, they are a very large volume and uh, entered under each man's name uh, throughout the war. Well, you know, fairly comprehensive details of when the man joined the battalion, um, when he went on leave, what courses he did, uh, what illnesses he had, if he was promoted or demoted in some cases, uh, um, if he left the battalion where he went, uh, if he was wounded, uh, he came back to battalion or maybe did not come back to battalion. And even when a man is killed, um, sometimes uh, you, you get a map reference which tells you where that the individual was buried. And in some cases, these are for men whose bodies subsequently disappear, lost, and they're on the memorials to the missing. So it's a very large, they're very large full scale 
volumes. And there is a, a, an entry for each individual, which is sometimes rather difficult. I mean, there's an awful lot of abbreviations you use, which you have to get used to. Um, but there's a, a pretty basic digestive service for every man. Uh, who was in, in the unit throughout the war while it was overseas. So uh, for, the, for the one first bus, there are these records. It's 139 officers served in the battalion while it was overseas and 2,906 other ranks. So you've got a complete record of service, really, of, of every one of those individuals. And therefore, of course, what it enables you to do particularly is to track how the, the, the nature of the unit changes, particularly because of casualties. Uh, there were some fairly heavy casualties on the Somme uh, in mid-July. The 48th Division doesn't get to the Somme until the middle of the battle. So the Butts Battalion has very heavy casualties in late July around Pozieres. And then again, it has fairly heavy casualties at Third Ypres in, in, again, late, not the start of battle, but around about late August 1917. So it's a very, these, where they survive, because the personnel records are so defective, they are you know, unique survival. And they do tell you a, a, an awful lot of information that you simply cannot find anywhere else where they survive. It's immensely significant. And you know, a sample of that size, we're talking about, you know, over 2,900 men. That's a very significant sample from work. So what do the casualty books tell us about the impact of war and how the geographical and social backgrounds of new drafts who joined to replace uh, casualties in the unit changed over, over the course of the war? OK, well, the one thing they can't tell you really is, for example, the occupation of a man before the war or when he went into the army. They don't tell you that. And they, they don't tell you where an individual may actually be born. You can't find that. Problem. But they tell you what regiment he was serving in when he joined the Bucks Battalion, if he was not already uh, a pre-war territorial. Um, and you, you're therefore able to trace the coming and going of individuals. Uh, some men get commissioned. Uh, some go on, they say they go on these courses. Some of these are rather bizarre courses. I mean, there's a lovely one. The man goes on a pigeon handling course, which I, I rather enjoyed. And people get, you know, attached elsewhere at various times. Um, there's an awful lot of people who end up in, in the sort of sanitation section at one point. Uh, and there's uh, the laundry section and the divisional baths and all this kind of thing. So there, there's this constant coming and going uh, for courses, for attachments. Men are going on leave. They're getting, they're getting wounded. Uh, they may or may not come back to the battalion, uh, depending on, on whether they're, you know, how severe the wound is. So it's that kind of thing. But because it's a territorial units, there are also some other uh, sort of con very specific conditions which uh, pertain to the territorials in the First World War. If you're a pre-war territorial, and indeed up until 1916, before you could go overseas, you had to agree to accept what is called the Imperial Service Obligation. In other words, you had to agree that you could be sent overseas. And that, that's until 1916. It's also illegal, technically, until 1916, for a territorial to be transferred to another unit or for a territorial unit to be amalgamated with another. So this makes it very, very difficult for the war in terms of sort of sending men where they, they might actually be needed. Um, Again, if you're pre-war territorial, you have a, a set term of service, which you've signed on for, it's four years, and this is automatically extended by a year when the war breaks out. But until 1916, you could leave uh, at 
the end of the expiry of that term of service. So you're getting men who, say, joined the territorials in 1910, uh, they can leave in 1915, and they do. So in this battalion, for example, there's 40 men who are pre-war territorials, and they sign on again between 1914 and 1916. But there's 97 who just choose to go home, and they're perfectly entitled to do so. Uh, even though, say, after January of 1916, between January and May of 16, when it's no longer possible, technically you can go home, even though you know that you might then be conscripted. Um, so uh, of the pre-war territorials who go overseas in March 15, in fact, 70 percent, in effect, choose to go home and they're perfectly entitled to do so. So you know, that, that's a kind of added little bit of information that you could get from these, which you could get from nowhere else. Uh, I mean, there's anecdotal information, maybe. Um, now, in terms of the drafting policy, uh, certainly initially, uh, the drafts are coming in from the second and third line. So they're from the two first Bucks Battalion or they're from the third first Bucks Battalion. Um, but as casualties begin to increase, so it's it, the war office is sending men from wherever. Um, initially, uh, after the casualties on the Somme, a lot of them are actually they are actually territorials. So a lot of men come in from the one first Hunts cyclist, which is a cyclist unit which had been you know, protecting East Anglia against the possibility of a German invasion. That's fine. But then increasingly, particularly in 1917, uh, and after the casualties in in Ypres in, in August, then you're getting men from there from, from the fourth Devon, the first Hampshires. And very significantly in the autumn of 17, and this causes lots of problems, um, you get an awful lot of men coming in from the Army Service Corps motor transport sort of units. Um, and if you kind of give you an overall figure, um, there's 1,988 men leave the battalion for one reason or another during the course of its service overseas, and 1,990 men come in to the unit. So if the drafting policy, in other words, maintains the strength of the unit, uh, that will conceal to some degree if a man leaves the battalion, say, twice, if he's wounded twice, comes back. But it, it gives you an indication, at least the drafting policy was working in terms of the overall number. But of course, there's a very substantial change in uh, in the actual manpower battalion. I mean, we're talking about, I suppose, roughly, we're talk talking about 900,000 men in, uh, at any one time in the battalion, just under so 900-ish, something like that. So there's this constant change. And this, the casualty books enable you to trace that in a way that no other source would be able to. And do you find that the number of sort of Buckinghamshire men actually declines significantly as the war goes on? Obviously, not they're not they're not drawn or, or born in Buckinghamshire, and they don't serve in the unit. Uh, yes, insofar as they are coming from other regiments. I mean, it, again, because you know, it doesn't actually tell you the actual origin of an individual, uh, where he is born or whatever, or even where he enlisted. Uh, but you can trace that in other ways, as as you'll know, there are the the uh, sort of the um uh, the, the lists of um of dead or the the cat. Oh, remember for life of me what they're called now. But, Soldiers died. Soldiers died, of course. Soldiers died in the Great War. And that does that does give you an indication of where a man was born or enlisted. So for the casualties, you can trace you know, that that change in a battalion. Um, that that's, uh, gives you kind of a, a rough indication. And you can certainly tell that, that that is the case, that there are fewer men from Buckinghamshire parishes who die as the war goes. But no, that deaths may occur 
sort of rather haphazardly within a battalion. Um, but it, it gives you a snapshot. And all we can tell from the casualties, although it's a substantial amount of information, is that these are men who are not from Buckinghamshire Regiment. And were you able to work out how long soldiers actually served in the unit before they left for whatever reason, their sort of longevity of service? And did this increase as the war goes on? I mean, there, there, are, there are certainly individuals who stay with the battalion throughout the war. Um, it, it's, again, you, you can sort of sit down and, and sort of work this one out. Um, it's, it's probably about 10%, maybe, who stay throughout the entire war. Although in then, see, they, they too are going on courses or they're, they're, they're getting sick uh, or they're uh, going on leave. Um, so there's this constant change all, all the way through. Um, of the officers, uh, certainly, I said that there are 139 officers uh, in the battalion at one time or another, only two are there throughout the war, although they too are going on courses and getting attachments and so on. Um, so uh, an individual, it's different. What's interesting in a way is a lot of those who come in as reinforcing drafts, say from the Hunt Cyclists in um, August of, of 1916, uh, the Somme, uh, July, late July 16, early August 16, the, the Somme battle is continuing and a lot of them become casualties as well. And the same thing happens in August 17, uh, men, say, coming in from the, the 1st Battalion Hampshire Regiment to join the regiment in August 17, they too have become casualties by September 1917. So there's no sort of, you, you can't say necessarily that there is you know, a very specific average period in which a man will stay with the battalion. It, it varies enormously. As I said, they're going off on these courses, the attachment. Or, or. And what do the casualty books tell us about discipline in the unit? Well, this is this is actually one of the more interesting aspects of what you can tell from it, uh, because um, uh, it's uh, I think, again, it, it relates very much to the change in the battalion, because in a way you get far greater problems later in the war, uh, particularly in Italy. And Italy, this accord, I'll, I'll come back to that perhaps in a few moments, but there, there's a, a general theory that's being developed about Italy um, compared with the Western Front. Um, every single disciplinary offence of these individuals is recorded. There are 303 in the course of the war. Now, actually, when you consider we're talking about, you know, uh, almost, you know, over, well over 2,000, almost 3,000 men serving the battalion, that's not a very substantial number. Um, and <laughs> you're getting kind of what you might term incorrigible road. So there, of these 303, 242 are simply a single offence by an individual. But you then get 18 men who commit two offences, two men who are up three times, uh, three men four times, and there's one who's up for seven different offences in the course of the war. Um, so, you know, clearly was, a, in many respects, a very bad soldier. But the real increase in crime in the battalion coincides with the arrival of the Army Service Corps men, uh, who obviously, uh, I, mean, I suppose when you think about it, if you're in the Army Service Corps, you may not necessarily have been very close to the front line, um, or not necessarily in the trenches, and I suspect you probably did not want to be sent to a, a frontline battalion. Um, but they account for over a third of all the military crimes committed after September 1917. Um, uh, initially, I think you're, you're getting, um, it, you know, the, the battalion is new to the Western Front in March 1915. You're getting some fairly obvious kind of um, early disciplinary offences to crack down upon. But the, the really substantial 
increase in bad discipline comes in Italy. And indeed, um, 47% of all the wartime offences are in Italy. A lot of them, usually it's absence. It's absence from billets. That's quite a, a common one. Or absence on parade or it's insolence or disobedience to an NCO. Um, so they're, they're not what you might term very serious crimes in, in many respects, although they are obviously military offences. Um, but again, everything increases in Italy. Now, in terms of the kind of punishments, it, again, the casualty book records exactly what the penalties were. And as you will know, there's field punishment number one for the most serious crimes. And this is where a man is you know, fettered to a fixed object uh, for a, a certain gun wheel or something, like a set number of van day. And then there's field punishment number two, uh, where you're, uh, you're, you're, you're sort of tied, but not in fetters to, to a fixed object. But increasingly, it's actually loss of power that's being used. And the particularly in Italy, and the theory that, that has been put forward by a number of historians now, Jerry Oram, I think, was the first one to suggest this, is that because you're now actually getting quite a lot of conscripts in the army, increasing through 1917, 1918, there is a, a general slack of, 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 this, of punishments being awarded. It's almost as if the army is um, slightly soft-pedalling at the way in which it deals with conscripts in particular. Um, Jerry Oram has called it pious perjury. Uh, so, you know, Men are committing offences, but the punishments are not as severe as they would have been in, say, 1915 or 1916. And uh, there are um, 26 field general courts martial in the battalion during the course of the war. Um, eight of them result in field punishment number one, uh, one in field punishment number two, but four simply reduction in, in the ranks, to the ranks, if they're NCOs. There are 13 of them are given sentences for hard labour, but none of them ever serve those sentences. They're always commuted. So uh, in a way, it's, uh, it's an interesting process. But e even though you've got a very s substantial increase in, in indiscipline of one kind or another after September 17, and particularly once you get to Italy, November 17, nonetheless, the, the, the penalties that are being awarded are substantially less than they have been in 1915 and 16, that's rather interesting in the ways. You know, it's again, you know, we need to know a lot more uh, from other detailed records about this process. So, yeah. Ian, was the discipline in the first first bucks uh, less severe than it would have been maybe in another unit? I'm just thinking about the territorial service battalion tradition of having allegedly more relaxed discipline than say regular units. My well, this is one. This is one of the big debates, really, in a way, because um, as you say, that certainly territorials argued uh, that they had a different kind of, say, officer-man relationship to, say, a regular unit, uh, based on the idea of kind of a social equality between officer and man. Now, that was certainly true of many of what we used to call the class corps, the sort of upper middle class corps in, in London, for example. You know, it's kind of units which you're familiar with, you know, artists, rifles, Queen's Westminster, those kind of things. How far that is true of the territorial force as a whole is perhaps a, a, a matter of debate. But certainly, generally speaking, territorials argue that and that they always argue that they're not really understood by regulars um a lot of this a lot of the information i suppose is anecdotal in a way you're relying on reminiscences um memoirs and so on rather than necessarily hard statistics uh certainly i mean 
you, you've worked, of course, on 56 Division, the first London Division. And it strikes me that there's a more formal discipline, there's a reliance on more formal discipline in 56 Division than there clearly was in 48 Division. Um, but yeah, every unit, that the, one of the difficulties we have, that every single battalion is very different. You know, there, there's no battalion that's ever the same as another. The experience the man has is, is the war depends very much on the unit in which he serves. Um, what you can say, I think, is that you know, there's, if you look at, say, the number of men who are executed, uh, 312 are executed British, British, actually British soldiers under the Army Act. And of those, only 10 are actually territorials. On the other hand, three of those are in the 48th Division, though not in the Butts Battalion. So it's very difficult to say. But you know, there is always, there's always this argument that the territorials uh, or better disciplined or rather in the sense that, that because there is this very different relationship between officers and men now you know we we simply you know we, we take that on trust to a degree uh, but we need more analysis really to be able to actually say whether or not that's actually true i mean clearly if you're a regular if you're an old regular uh, in the army you can expect certainly harsher punishments than if you're territorial or indeed a new army volunteer. Um, arguably, perhaps if you're a conscript, it's become it becomes a bit more harsh. I know it's difficult to say. We're we're, we're really speculating to a very large degree. But 303 offences amongst over 2,900 men, you know, is relatively small, really. So it suggests that certainly one first bus battalion had relatively sound discipline, at least until he got the Army Service Corps people. <laughs> Why do you think the Army Service Corps people actually seem to cause this um, problem? I mean, because that's really fascinating, whether it's a culture, whether it's the individuals, whether it's just bad apples or, you know, or they've been got rid of because they are just a pain in the bum. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you, you get this in a way at the start of the war, in a way, in terms of that um, when the when the one first Butts Battalion take the Imperial Service obligation, for varying reasons, not everybody does. And this is the, the mark feature of the territorials in 1914, that you don't have to go overseas. And therefore, for whatever reason, you may choose not to do so. If you're married, for example, I mean, the, the wharf is screwed up the kind of the separation allowances and a lot of men with dependents took time to decide they wanted to go. So men are sent back from the 1st Battalion. They become the nucleus of the 2 1st Bats Battalion. A lot of them then go back to the one first in the first reporting drafts. But when it comes to um, the 2 1st Battalion sending men forward to the 1 1st Battalion, if they are not you know, from originally from that battalion, it, they do actually tend to send back some of the more difficult characters. And the same thing happens when the 3rd 1st Bucks send men to two first bucks. You know, you you do tend to to shift those you don't really want. Um, now, uh, again, with, with what's interesting about the first hunt cyclists is that um, the men who go to the first bucks battalion are, have certain letters of the alphabet. They're like A to C, and you think, okay, so somebody is deciding that those with surnames A to C will go to this battalion. And those who with surnames you D to H or whatever will go to another battalion. So that, that's quite interesting, the way that that's that being sorted by the, the war office. In terms of the RV service corps, I think it's what I sort of suggested earlier, that you know, these are men who may not necessarily have been in, directly in the front line, uh, who are now going to be in the front line. Um, so 
know, and you know, in any case, if you're being forced, as it were, I mean, these are these are compulsory transfers. You know, you have no choice. You are sent to you know the battalion. Uh, there may well be a great deal of resentment that you, you've ended up in this particular battalion when you didn't want to be in this particular battalion. I mean, it, generally, we that there is this problem with the territorials generally um, where so it is technically illegal to send a territorial to a different unit and all kinds of problems come. There are all sorts of questions are being asked, asked in, in, in Parliament in, by 1916. Why has this batch of men not been sent back to their unit? And the war office says, well, no, sorry, no, there's, there's a war. <laughs> there's a war on. We need, we need men here. So I think it, it's, it's partly that. You're going to a unit with which you're not very familiar. It's possible that, indeed, you have not actually been very close to the front line. And now you find that you are going to be. So somebody may actually require you to, to be in the front line. So it may be a combination of things. Um, uh, and the fact the whole group of men go together, perhaps, uh, is something which may, who knows, it's very difficult to say, uh, encourage uh, a certain dissension amongst that particular group. Difficult to say, really. My penultimate question is, what do the casualty books tell us about sickness amongst officers and soldiers in the battalion? Well, that's interesting as well, in a way, because, um, you know, I, I was talking, I've spoken about heavy casualties uh, at two very specific points of the war, late July 1916 and late August 1917. But by, if you look at the war as a whole, by far the most significant factor in people leaving the battalion or being absent from the battalion is simply illness or sickness. Um, now, we associate influenza for example, very much with the pandemic of 1918. But there are recurring cases, quite significant recurring instances of influenza in the battalion in 1915 and 1916. It's not something that suddenly appears, as it were, in 1918. Uh, and again, there's, mes there's an outbreak of German measles, rather appropriately, maybe, um, uh, at an early stage. Presumably because men there are mixing together in very large numbers and all the rest of it. Um, where you get a very significant influence in disease again is in Italy because it is influenza. And uh, uh, 103 men are, are out of the battalion in June 1918 with influenza at the time that there's a major Austro-Hungarian attack on 48th Division. Um, circumstances which is actually left to the sacking of, of the divisional commander Fanshawe uh, for one reason or another. Um, so you do get sudden outbreaks like that but all the time you're getting uh, there's an awful lot of scabies and there's impetigo, there's eczema, an awful lot of dental problems and um, particularly care, dental caries and there's, there's work again on the diet of the soldier which been, has been done during the war and that suggests that there wasn't a very healthy diet and therefore this was likely to lead to poor dental care. And that certainly seems to be the case in the battalion. Um, sometimes it's very difficult to pin down what's actually wrong with an individual. They tend almost any kind of fever. They call pyrexia. Um, and then you have this mysterious ICT, which is interconnective tissue. And that seems to be describe anything that's wrong with, a, with a joints in the arms, uh, with problems with muscles. And an awful lot of that goes on. And presumably that may well be related to you know, standing in the trench in, in pretty awful conditions uh, for a long period of time. But again, what's really noticeable 
is the increase in venereal diseases in Italy. Now, generally, uh, we know that there is more venereal disease in Italy than there was on the Western Front. Uh, now, that maybe relates again. Who knows? <laughs> uh, it, it, it comes back to the question of discipline in a way. Um, it's sometimes suggested that malaria was a problem in Italy, um, not in this battalion. There's only one man who goes down with malaria. Um, so, no, but and all kinds of other illnesses, which are not statistically as significant, but you've got, you know, you've got varicose veins and there's uh, piles of rheumatism and hernia. Even there's even a couple of cases of diphtheria. You know, it seems extraordinary. But the, the really, the really statistically significant diseases are influenza throughout the war and venereal disease in Italy. And that, of course, brings you straight back to the question of, of discipline. And is it possible? I don't know. Because I, I, I find this really interesting because I've done some work on the 16th Londons and I calculated that their average sickness rate per month was around 10% of their establishment, which is incredibly. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's, I found that, you know, it's, an, it's a source of attrition. I mean, a lot of these guys come back, but it's a huge yeah. number of people leaving the unit every, every month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, that's absolutely borne out. And um, I mean, the, you also, I mean, if a man is wounded, you know, he, he may or may not come back. Some some come back, some don't. But you, invariably, you do come back to the unit uh, after a few days. I mean, it, it's, I, I haven't got the exact figures off hand, I could, I could uh, at this precise moment, but generally speaking, a fever or something like that, or boil or whatever, you're going to be away for, Three or four days, maybe, um, maybe a little bit longer. Um, most, and most about seven or eight days. But if you have a sudden outbreak, like in June 1918, when you've got 103 men off, you know, sudden, you know, off for seven or eight days at the very moment that you have this attack on the lines, and other men are going to be away from the battalion anyway, on various courses or whatever, um, it, it, that can be very significant, certainly. And it's certainly a factor, I think, in, in the reverse i mean the austro-hungarians are able to penetrate the front line of 48th division for um a few a relatively small period of time a few hours um but that led to said the sacking of fanshawe um but you know illness is there all the time it's a constant they're always met i mean a battalion is never going to be full strength it seems to me uh, because there are always men men who are not with it for whatever reason they're on attachments, they're on courses, they're ill, um, they, they've been sent you know, wherever. Um, it happens all the time. And my final question, Ian, is where can people learn more about your work and the first stroke first bucks? Well, um, the, the the work on the casualty books was, was uh, funded. Um, it was, um, as you know, um, a number of universities got engagement centres during the centenary. And University of Kent uh, was able to get funds for uh, the gateways to the First World War Centre. And the I'm secretary of Bucks Military Museum Trust. And together with what's now the Bucks Archives, it was then called Centre of Bucks Studies. Uh, we put in a bid to the Arts and Humanities Research Council through the Kent Centre. And we got a grant. So they've all been digitised. And um, there's a team of volunteers at the record office in Aylesbury who are actually transcribing them all. 
And in due course, uh, the digitization is complete, but the, 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 the work of transcribing every single record is not yet complete. And ultimately, that will go on um, what's called the, um, the Great War Buckinghamshire website run by Bucks Archives. Um, it's a condition of the grant <coughs> that there should be a, a published study. And uh, Tim Bowman, uh, who's my colleague at the University of Kent, and I have more or less completed that, that study. Uh, we've just got to do a little bit of work on comparison with some other surviving casualty books, such as those in Norwich. And that will appear maybe a year or so. I mean, there's a long period of, as you will know, with academic journals, it can be a long time after submission before an article appears. So that eventually will be there. But within Butts Military Museum Trust, we, we have a website, uh, bmmt.co.uk. And um, we're putting online, um, chapter by chapter, a comprehensive history of military history back in ship. And so far, uh, those chapters go up to 1914. But the 1914-1918 chapter will be up online, I think, in about two to three weeks. And that will have all the tables that we've extracted uh, from the casualty books and, and much of what I've been telling you. And therefore, that's going to be available online um, as part of the, the military history of Buckinghamshire, um, well ahead of the, the wider study on the relation, how this relates to the historiography, which is something that Tim and I will eventually be able to get into an academic journal. Ian, thank you very much for your time. No pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.